In the first three episodes of this podcast, Dave Foreman, Reed Noss, and John Davis answered the question, what is rewilding? And throughout the first 100 episodes, we heard from experts around the globe about their parts in the rewilding movement. But what happens when a philosopher of language gets a hold of the term rewilding? Can deeper insight be gained into what true rewilding means? And could a better understanding lead to better rewilding projects around the world? Find out that and much more on today's episode with my guest, Kate McFarlane. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kate McFarland holds a BS in mathematics, MS in statistics, and a PhD in philosophy with a focus on pragmatics and philosophy of language from Ohio State University, which she completed just for fun before leaving academia to spend a few years as a freelance writer. When European borders reopened in the summer of 2021, Kate left her flat in Columbus to live nomadically in pursuit of a long-standing dream of car-free, active, transportation-based rural living, which in today's overdeveloped world means she spends most of her time self-exiled on small islands. Her experiences in Europe would become very influential in the development of her thinking about conservation ethics and rewilding discourse. An article Kate wrote in October sparked a desire to have her on the podcast. Links to on rewilding, whatever that is, and her follow-up articles are located on this episode's page at rewilding.org slash POD, episode 101. So I am actually a philosopher of language, and one thing that fascinates me about rewilding discourse is that the term is used in many conflicting and sometimes contradictory ways, and in the article to which you alluded, Jack, I was trying to do some to elucidate the fact that rewilding is used with ambiguous meanings, particularly I think that there's an ambiguity in the way that rewilding is commonly used in North America versus Europe. And I think that it does a disservice to the movement to try to treat rewilding as one single concept or um, a word with a univocal meaning. So I guess I have to start out by saying <laughs> I deny the, the presupposition that there is one thing that is referred to by the word rewilding and all of these different uses. You know, we're all on listening to this podcast familiar with the prototypes of rewilding in um, North America, right? Continental scale conservation characterized by porous corridors and carnivores, um, natural disturbance regimes, and, and so forth. I don't want to do too much to try to elaborate the American conception of rewilding. You can go, people can go back and listen to the first podcast with Dave and these other podcasts you just mentioned. Now, as a philosopher of language, and as someone who has recently especially spent some time living in Europe, I'm interested as a philosopher of language in the fact that I don't think the, the common usage of the word rewilding in Europe should even be considered semantically equivalent 
to the most common um, usage in North America. And I'm sure we'll get on to why I also think this is important. So it's simply a fact that um, in the European context, the word rewilding is used with a different historical tradition and different conceptual prototypes. And it's not contested. In the Danish context, which is where I'm most familiar with this other use of the word, word rewilding, um, it was essentially used as synonymous with naturalistic grazing. Um, it's the use of large herbivores, usually cows and horses, um, to graze the land and whether heath or meadow or forest um, and enclosures to maintain and create um, open or mosaic landscapes. This is a usage that you see in mainstream conservation publications in Denmark, certainly, and I believe in Europe more broadly. You see it in academic publications. Um, there is a comprehensive port report just put out last year by the universities of Aarhus and Copenhagen that claim that there are 85 rewilding projects running in Denmark. Um, but this is using um, throughout the report the term rewilding essentially synonymous with naturalistic grazing projects. Again, this is not just a typical use in um, Denmark, but in Europe more generally. And I, there is widespread agreement in any commentator you read that in the common European use of the word, word rewilding, um, the underlying concept which is applied comes out of the Netherlands. It's this Dutch concept called nature development, which um, held the, the controversial project Osvaldus Plassen as its flagship project. And you know, I actually went back to see what you had already had about the European context on the Rewilding Earth podcast. And I noticed that in a couple of your other older interviews with um, Paul Jepson and then Mark Fisher, um, obviously they disagree in their evaluation of rewilding in Europe, but they say the same thing on this point about linguistic usage. Um, both of them agree that in Europe, rewilding is linked to this Dutch concept of nature development and its emphasis on grazing by large herbivores um, without carnivores. And as exemplified by the Ostwarders Plassen project, Jepson described it as reassembling the wild herbivore guilds of the Pleistocene or something like that. Um, Fisher described it as grazing livestock in fenced areas, but they're talking about the same thing. Um, the dominant practice called rewilding is to graze livestock in fenced areas. And the justification um, is often given by groups like Rewilding Europe is that it supposedly replicates the communities of um, mega herbivores that lived 12,000 years ago or so. And it's assumed that this is the appropriate baseline for um, restoration. So you know, that's one of the claims I'm interested in about what rewilding is. It's an ambiguous term that has taken on divergent meanings in um, Europe and North America. You know, there are also other divergences we can point to, right? You know, even within the North American context, there's traditional <laughs> rewilding, if you want to call it that, and there's Pleistocene rewilding, which you know, someone isn't necessarily committed to um, supporting if they support work like the Wildlands Project. Um, project and the Rewilding Institute. And I think that it's, it's essential um, to make separations between these different um, terms and concepts 
in order to understand there, there are different assumptions about what the goals of rewilding are, what they should be, what our underlying ethical assumptions are, what we believe the appropriate baselines for restorations to be, how much human intervention we think should be appropriate, and, and so forth. Um, if if um, commentators about rewilding ignore these significant conceptual differences and just treat all uses of the term as synonymous, then that um, elides different you know, types of fundamental disagreements that we really need to engage rather than ignore. With so many questions that you've raised here, and this is just really the tip of the iceberg, in your right. article you go much, much deeper, so many questions out there about what is our goal? I don't advocate that we adopt some kind of relativism and say that you know there's a certain practice that we should pursue in North America and another certain practice that we should pursue in Europe and maybe other practices for other continents and there are just all different. Um, I actually I really like the ethical principles and the um, ecological principles that underlie the North American movement and I think that you know we should tease out the best of those. I you know we should analyze the other traditions as well to see if they what they have to offer. But you know, I do think that we should give up on a unified definition of the term rewilding, or at least we shouldn't try to force um, a univocal definition on, say, the use of the term by the Rewilding Institute and by Rewilding Europe. But I think that we can step aside from the semantic issue and we can critically evaluate some of the problematic problems or problematic um, projects that are called rewilding. And using good ecology and using um, the best principles of, of ecological ethics, I think we can suggest better alternatives. Yeah, one thing that I has always attracted me to the North American rewilding movement are certain fundamental ethical principles that have been discussed by people like Dave Foreman and Michael Sule that are very uncommon, not only in conservation rhetoric, but not even very often forefronted in um, philosophical discourse. You know, I'm a philosopher of language, but I casually read about environmental ethics because you know, I care about nature and I can't help but think philosophically about things I care about. And you know, what really drew me to the rewilding movement in the first place was the emphasis um, on this conception that, that Dave likes to always remind us of that wilderness is self-willed land and that one of the major objectives of um, wilderness and wildlands preservation is to protect this self-willed, self-regulating, autonomous um, nature of, well, the nature of nature, the autonomous nature of ecological and evolutionary process. And another thing that comes up um, in form and actually maybe first in Michael Soule's um, Principles of Conservation Biology is this idea that evolution itself, um, the underlying um, evolutionary processes that have generated all the wonderful life we have is something that is good in itself and should be an object of preservation. Um, so in, in conjunction, you know, this idea that the objective, one of the core objectives of um, rewilding, morally speaking, is to protect um, the self-willed process of evolution is an ethical position that I find extremely attractive and that needs more adherence. <laughs> And I would suggest taking that as the unifying principle, um, at least the basic ethical principle by, by which to evaluate the quality of um, rewilding projects in whatever sense rewilding the term is being used. I agree. And I'd hope, I hoped you had, you would go there <laughs> because uh, 
Yeah, that's for a lot of people to this day, you can kind of find yourself in an argument about wilderness. What is wilderness? And yes. um, a lot of people who don't really know what they're talking about these days uh, or have any sense of history love to say there's no more wilderness. There's no such thing as wilderness. You hear that still a lot. Yes, it's yes. Kind of a rallying cry. And you did a really great job of reminding everyone about wildness over wilderness. Yes, I mean, this is where I think that this etymological deconstruction of wilderness as softwood land is actually extremely helpful philosophically. It's not just um, an arcane etymological point. You know, there are so many complaints that I think are complete red herrings. I'm talking about wilderness, that, you know, there's nothing pristine. You know, people have been changing landscapes for thousands of years. Now there's anthropogenic climate change that affects all of us, so we can't really talk about wilderness and, and so forth. And thinking about autonomy, the fact that we can conceive of you know, landscapes or the process of evolution itself as an autonomous system, I think that that can really change the ethical perspective by which we think about wilderness conservation, right? It's not about preserving some kinds of pristine land in some pr pristine state. It's about respecting the autonomy of self-willed natural processes. And, you know, we do have a concept of respect for autonomy. Right? We think of this, we can admit that all people in some way are interdependent, but we still have a concept of respecting the autonomy of other people, you know, not being too intrusive, allowing them to pursue their own goals. You know, we can think analogously about wild lands and that entirely sidesteps all of these issues about purity that um, are vexing for so many. Okay, now let's do restoration. <laughs> so a lot of people would go, all right, restore to what? And they think they're being smart. Right. That's not what a lot of us who think about restoration mean when we're coming from a self-willed perspective. Can you elaborate on that? And I think one way that can be useful to think about this is you know, to um, keep focus on the question of what, what does nature want? What is nature's, what, what is our best approximation of nature's own goals for this piece of land? And think about intervention in this context. Um, Sometimes we know how to intervene, what needs to be done, you know, removing a, a dam, removing invasive species, restoring a recently extirpated keystone species and so forth that, you know, in making these kinds of interventions, you know, we have a good idea of you know, how nature wanted that land to be as it were before recent human disturbances and we can assist and make those adjustments, whereas you know, there is so much more guesswork involved in something like trying to make facsimiles of um, Pleistocene ecosystems. You know, the habitat has changed considerably since that time. Um, we would have to use non-native species since many of the native ones have gone extinct. So we either use domesticated proxies or translocated species um, or, you know, some have even proposed synthetic biology. You know, this is much more you know, intrusive and I think demands much more imposition of human will versus just trying to tend to what um, nature's will would be. And the result is not a result. The result isn't, I, we need six beavers here, five raccoons, and, you know, we need some of those bird things over there. It's not... <laughs> wildlife management it's not 
farming or gardening right or right just intensive human hand at all it's get to a state where it can be self-willed where uh maybe six of those raccoon things will come in but we don't know but we'll just let the land tell us from that point we just got to get ourselves out of the way right exactly exactly and that's the curiosity that i i often encountered in europe i mean not that but almost the opposite of that um there are certain habitat types that are often decreed to be protected in europe under the eu um, habitats and birds directive and you know here um in many cases, the protected habitats are ones that are admittedly the results of human disturbance, human interference with the land, many agrarian landscapes, but also some very bizarre cases. An island that I particularly loved um, in Denmark called Anholt was almost entirely deforested several hundred years ago. And due to the deforestation and subsequent overuse of um, the resources, of the, the heathland that resulted. <laughs> I guess the, the island became became desertified to an extent that it represents something like a rare degree of degradation. <laughs> but in this degraded state, there are ecosystems that are recognized as rare in their composition of certain lichen communities, especially. So this degraded, deforested island is, it's a um, Natura 2000 site. It has 17 different habitats that are protected um, under the EU Habitats directive, directive, most of them different types of heath and dune ecosystems um, or habitats, but it is protected in this degraded state that came about by deforestation. And because it's protected to save, to preserve these certain rare habitat types and rare assemblages of lichens, it's actually the subject of active anti-afforestation efforts. The island is managed to keep natural reforestation from occurring, even though it was originally a forested island, because the emphasis is just on conserving these certain habitat types, certain assemblages that are deemed to be rare and therefore of conservation importance. Right? Just the opposite of what we were just saying is the way we should think of restoration, which is not specific to freezing any particular point in time, but thinking about restoring the conditions for self-willed land. My time spent on this island was very instrumental in me becoming um, critical of much of the conservation efforts and discourse in Europe, which does become linked to this other use of rewilding and um, its association with naturalist grazing. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. And something that I hear occasionally is that you rewilding can't be the same in Europe as in America because obviously it's a much more crowded country. There's just not room for the large-scale um, wildlands projects 
projects that we can pursue on the American West. Um, I mean, there isn't an issue that sometimes there seems to be that defeatism in Europe where the word rewilding is just applied to small scale projects, but that's not the only issue. Um, maybe an even more important issue is that um, the term is being applied to certain projects that aren't just not rewilding, but that shouldn't be pursued at all. One interesting contrast is in attitudes towards passive forest regeneration in the rewilding North America movement and in Europe, you know, as pursued by organizations like Rewilding Europe. So obviously in articles about this, you know, most people are familiar with the regreening of New England after farmers abandoned their fields and went to work in the cities, right? And this is often discussed and how the story of ecological recovery in the American context you know, is considered like a, the Paragon nature-led rewilding success story. But in not only in cases like the island of Anhalt and the attacks on afforestation to preserve the lichen heath, um, and in um, areas of Europe where the same sort of land abandonment is going on, the land is also subject to efforts to restore it in a more, to maintain it in a more agrarian farm-like tradition and prevent afforestation. And that's exactly what rewilding Europe does. You know, there are people who do talk about rewilding in Europe and say that, you know, one example of how Europe is being rewilded is that people are moving away from the farms and into cities. And therefore there's this natural automatic regreening of the European countryside. I think when you had Ignacio Jimenez on your program to talk about rewilding in Spain, I know he talked some about um, the, the natural afforestation of the Spanish countryside when people are leaving the farms and you know, he's talking about how this makes a lot of people uncomfortable in Spain and there's a fight to, to push back. That's something that sometimes happens, but it's, I think it's very important to stress that groups like Rewilding Europe aren't trying to allay fears of passive forest regeneration and um, abandoned farmland, but they're actually trying to prevent reforestation. I mean, this is public knowledge. <laughs> if you go to Rewilding Europe's website or read interviews with their founding members, they are completely open that the founding mission of the organization was to restore grazing to abandoned farmland in order to prevent afforestation. Paul Jepson, I think, did mention something about this um, on your podcast episode and where he talked about returning grazing animals to abandoned farmland in order to prevent them from scrubbing over and becoming a wildfire risk. And that's one of the rationales. But note that that doesn't really sound like typical rewilding discourse. Right? This is more like you know, ecosystem services to provide a benefit to humans to protect them from wildfires. You know, much more typically in North American rewilding discourse, we talk about how natural wildfire is good. That's something you know, important to have in our ecosystems. Sometimes it's economic. Sometimes. They want, they talk about restoring jobs to rural areas by providing opportunities for this safari park type tourism. There are alleged more um, biocentric justifications. Like there's an often repeated claim that 50% of Europe's biodiversity is in some way reliant on agrarian landscapes. And there's a fear that this particular type of biodiversity will be lost if forests are allowed to regenerate. But 
you know, I won't go through all of the various justifications, just know that there is this very salient difference in the attitudes towards the afforestation of abandoned farmland in New England versus Europe. And it's a difference that transpires under the headings of what is called rewilding in, in both countries. So I, I will just leave the question with viewers. You know, if passive afforestation is good in previously farmed areas of New England, why isn't good in previously farmed areas of Europe you know, or vice versa? See, this, this isn't a question about the scale being different in Europe versus North America. It is a very similar process that's occurring. The, the attitude and the response to this phenomena is almost diametrically opposite in the American rewilding movement versus that in Europe. And we can't just assume that because a project is calling itself rewilding that it, it will pass these criteria. I mean, I would like to issue a plea for the North American rewilding movement to look more critically about what's happening in Europe, especially, and use use your own ecological knowledge, your own moral standards based on you know, protection of self or land, as we talk about, and use that to critically evaluate these conservation grazing projects that are so predominant under the heading of rewilding in Europe. Right, again, this is using often non-native species, often domestic species of um, herbivores, and typically in fenced enclosures, almost all, always without carnivores, and being intentionally used in some way or other to clear the land of vegetation, <laughs> maintain some type of open landscape, or um, open up a forest. And they're being used with the intention of serving as proxy species for species that are assemblages of species that supposedly lived in the late Pleistocene, but not necessarily at any time since then. So there's so much that could be, be criticized. Should we be using a Pleistocene baseline at all? Should, should we be using non-native species in rewilding projects or, or restoration projects, whatever you want to, to call them? Should we be trying to manage for what we think is a natural density of herbivores? in um, a fenced enclosure without any without their predators or should we only pursue any type of introduction of large herbivores if we are actually able to allow um, for their natural movement patterns and also have large carnivores in the landscape there there are numerous questions both ecological and ethical that can and should be brought to bear on this typical practice of rewilding in europe and i think that the North American rewilding movement has a lot to contribute that could critically advance the discourse. We lose that opportunity if we just pretend or that the word rewilding means the same thing in both continents. And we just think, oh, it's great. There's a rewilding Europe group and um, they must be doing wonderful things. Um, it's useful to be more critical than that. And you know, don't, don't give up. Don't assume that Europeans know what they're doing just because it's the local. I mean, there are very <laughs> entrenched cultural traditions that yeah. motivate the preservation of certain culturally derived landscapes, especially agrarian landscapes. And there may be, um, I think that there is this kind of a sense of defeatism, like, oh, we can't really have large continental scale conservation, even if that's what nature requires anywhere in the world. So Mark Fisher and in his interview on um, your podcast had a great line that the, something like 
the laws of ecology don't change just because you go on another continent. And I want to add that the laws of ethics don't change just because you're on another continent. Mm. So if we really want to be defenders of self-willed land, then I think that we need to apply these, uh, these underlying moral principles, right, in addition to the ecology, when evaluating projects elsewhere, including in Europe. And I do think this is one advantage that the Rewilding Institute has over a lot of these other um, organizations is you still have this very firmly grounded ethical foundation, right? It's right there in the vision statement. That some, like, what do you say that we believe the majority of the world should be wild and that humans have an obligation to protect um, wild nature or something like that? Um, mm -hmm. You would think about that in whatever context is being applied. And in some cases, in more densely populated areas, there's a longer way to go um, to achieve you know, large areas of self-regulating nature. But it doesn't mean that that shouldn't be kept in mind as the long-term goal. I do think that it's always important to think about rewilding in conjunction with reducing human um, the human footprint through you know, reducing the human population size, through economic degrowth in um, industrialized nations. And I mean, we should be saying that about all of the overdeveloped world, not just Europe, but especially when we're thinking about a crowded continent. Instead of saying, oh, it's too crowded to have genuine rewilding here, you think about how we can start putting building blocks together and in conjunction with shrinking human footprint through reducing population size, through localization, through economic degrowth. Think about how eventually, even in new areas that have been degraded by human activity for many centuries, think about how, what is the trajectory that we can start on now to eventually get to a place where we give space to self-willed nature. What if we looked at it through a cultural lens? How how is it that we're trying to solve a problem developed with a culture of or a relationship with the land uh, that brought it to its current state to try to fix it using the same cultural relation, the same relationship to the land that we had when we, you know, took it out of play as a self-willed land? Is there anything to that? Is that tie into what we were talking about today? Culture can be wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just because there's a certain cultural sentiment to preserve certain types of degraded landscape doesn't mean that that should be done. You know, maybe this island of Anhalt that I was talking about, maybe there's some certain kinds of cultural sentiment attached to the open heath landscape, but I don't think that that would be any excuse to prevent natural forest regeneration on an island that was deforested by humans. Well, one of the reasons so, I bring that up is yeah. because the way that Dave Foreman and others arrived at their understanding and their love for the land. I mean, it was really from a, it, it comes from a base of love for nature and the, and that self-willed land and wild nature uh, that everything came, everything sprouted from that. Their yeah. whole philosophy yeah. and everything sprouted yeah. from that. And so for someone to say, you need to think like this person who had a very apparently unique experience in their early developmental lives that they that they that they then based an entire um their own philosophy uh, about um you know all Aldo Leopold and and all of that 
um, to expect people who don't have anything close to that sort of relationship or love of nature to then be able to understand and adopt these things isn't aren't we then talking more about uh, a process in, in tandem with everything else of just educating yeah. or right right I completely agree yeah it's, I mean there is a problem in Europe that sometimes people will say oh well you know it's just our culture here that we prefer these certain kinds of things and that's what I was responding to I mean, you know just because of the culture doesn't mean it's morally right. well no I meant that too but yeah I'm, yeah I'm... so yes you're what you're talking about then there's also this correlative need to change the culture. I completely agree with that. Um, you know, a lot of people were inspired to become wireless advocates because of experience in wilderness areas. If I may make an embarrassing confession, I have never been in a wilderness area. <laughs> um, my, you know, I spend a lot of time in the closest approximations to wild nature that I can find wherever I happen to be living you know, on a daily basis, you know, I spend most of my adult life confined to a, a city. And then you know, now I'm living nomadically, mostly on small islands. You understand that that's really good news though, right? I mean, if it was required that people have your level of attachment to wild nature, that you had had to have a wilderness experience, that doesn't bode yeah. well for the yeah. future. Yeah, I, I hope this, I, yeah, I, I hope that this can you know, be inspiration. That not all hope is gone. Uh, actually, for me, my initial attraction was theoretical because I've always been very fascinated by the evolution of life on Earth, and you know, I did come very interested in contemporary nature, nature that still exists rather than just the extinct stuff, especially via via birds. And birds that I saw in the city predominantly. Um, when I was living in Columbus, Ohio, I lived next to um, a, a 50 hectare restored wetland just in the middle of the city, um, the Olentangy Wetland Research Center, part of the Ohio State University. And it's, you know, an incredible birding spot. Um, I think that the e-bird the e list is well over 200 species. You know, we get lots of wading birds, um, many warblers come through during spring and fall migration. And I would just pass through this place on the bike trail on my way to work at the university. And it became very, um, very empathetic to birds. <laughs> and this, this conjunction of this direct experience of some kind of wild creature, even though it was in a city, you know, this led me just to start looking up conservation projects and organizations. And being a philosopher, of course, I would notice the discourse. And I became horrified by the amount of anthropocentrism and a lot of conservation discourse saying that we need to conserve nature for its ecosystem services and benefits to humans. This is just completely ridiculous. Humans are an extremely young species. <laughs> and you know, so, what, so yeah, thinking like a, a philosopher and having an antecedent interest in the evolutionary history of life and reading the types of justification that people were actually giving for conservation, I became quite exasperated with um, the human-centered rhetoric of most conservation. And, you know, this is what led me to really start thinking seriously about what the moral foundations of conservation should be and what projects should thereby be done. So it was a conjunction of scientific interest, theoretical interest, and just some really modest experience of nature in an urban setting was actually sufficient to make me passionate about rewilding. 
that's more akin to the kinds of experiences that I hear about all the time when I ask people, you know, what, what brings you here, friend? (laughs) (laughs) What brings you around these parts? And it's a lot like that. It's, it's really a lot like that. I mean, I even have like, there was no wilderness in uh, Indiana that I knew of at the time. There is a tiny wilderness area here. Um, It took me uh, 30 years and a trip around the world to come back and find out that there was actually a wilderness area here. Um, but I finally found it, but in the beginning, it was just playing in creeks with tadpoles and, yeah. um, very modified creeks. These weren't natural. Nothing I played right, right. as a kid was natural. It was all heavily modified stuff, but, uh, it was temporarily self-willed at different times. Yeah, of the yeah. year, And that's all I needed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is why I want to emphasize, I do not by any means oppose small scale projects, right? So one of one of the linguistic controversies that often comes up is should we call it rewilding if it's just right, a, a pollinator garden in the city or something? Is that and I think there can be a danger in using the term rewilding too broadly, uh, um, if it's accompanied by the sense of defeatism that yeah, this is the best we can do. We'll call this rewilding and we won't aspire towards anything else. But I think that small scale projects, especially urban um, restoration projects where people actually live are extremely important and not sufficient to save wild nature by any means, but nonetheless critical or you know, at least can be very instrumental in getting people to notice wildness and you know, think about the beauty of nature. Well, if we're going to have more and more people thinking like a mountain, we're going to need more people exposed to any form of mountainness. <laughs> right. You know, and it can't, and 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 because most people don't live around mountains and they're never going to, maybe some of them will never ever see or climb to the top of a mountain. Um, but if we need them to think like a mountain, mm-hmm. they need to have the room and space to do that, even if it's a backyard garden project. And it, it's like nails on a chalkboard sometimes. But at the same time, it's like, well, wait, that's where that culture develops, that future culture, that 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 oneness feeling that, you know, yeah. whatever happened to all of us in our in our beginning um, curious stages that that turn that little light on. That can happen in the weirdest little places, and it certainly hardly ever happens for somebody in a, a all a Leopoldic way in a big, vast <laughs> wilderness with Ansel Adams taking a picture, and and it, it's right, just, right. That, that stuff is all fantasy. It hardly happened that way for anybody. Yeah. Everybody else came to their uh, ecological education, understanding, and culture in a much more humble way. And uh, anytime that we can put people in close proximity to that happening, it's like a lightning strike, but at least put them there during an yes. electrical storm. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, of course, uh, the philosophical discussions do not happen on a timeline, a beginning or an end uh, by nature, by definition, right? There's right. Uh, and um, we're still and dealing with you know, 3000 year problems. Yeah. Well, I'm not make a contemporary analytic philosopher, but Yes, I still deal with problems from the, the 1960s. <laughs> We're still sorting that out. We'll get to you when we have an answer. Mm-hmm. After doing so many episodes of this, the vast, vast majority of things that we deal with here on this podcast, but also as a reflection of the conservation movement as a whole, you know, good, the bad, the ugly, everything taken into account, it's all contextual 
issue oriented, right. timely. We've got to save this thing. Here's how we save this thing. And here's how we might save future things because of the, what we learned by saving this thing. And we got to write to this guy and we got to do this and we got to do that. And not much time is ever taken to, to slow down and think about things. Um, like, why are we doing, is this the right way to, is this the right way to language what we're doing? Yeah. Is, is it okay to do it in this temporary situation where we can have no hope to get this group of people to have uh, a, a philosophy um, and a culture and a background? We just need them to vote properly, like next week. So what do we yeah. say? Well, that's where all that, that's where all that environmental services crap comes from. That's, right. you know, but then, then there are times where I look at our movement and I go, wait a minute, are you guys are you guys believing this? Like, are you, is this environmental services thing? That's not just a thing you use to get a vote. It sounds like that's your belief system. Like, wait, we need yeah. to stop back and like, think about this for a second. Cause that's right, kind of right. And me. I mean, it can run the risk of hypocrisy of people who are not motivated or even turned off by ecosystem service rhetoric adopt it because we think that it's necessary to drum up public interest or, or get a vote, right? <laughs> If it's not what motivates us, maybe we could think about, you know, as we were just talking about, you know, why are we motivated to see restoration and rewilding in this nature first ecocentric way? And if if that can be our viewpoint, why can't we hope other people will assume that viewpoint also? Kate, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Rewilding Earth podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.